Welcome everyone to Spirited Discussions. I am your host, Lachlan Watt, a passionate alcoholic and alcohol educator with years of experience in both the spirits and bar industries. Throughout this series, we are going to explore the history and production of some of our favorite vibations, and in each episode, I'll be joined by an incredibly experienced guest. Together, we will delve into a topic with all of the information that you need to understand why you enjoy what you're drinking, as well as some fun tidbits to share with your friends. I'm so looking forward to taking you on this journey to discover the wonderful world of alcohol. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Spirited Discussions, where I'm joined today by one of my good friends, Laura Thomason. Thank you. We will be exploring agave spirits, a topic that you and I are both very excited by. And arguably, I'd say you know much more than I do. I did very much geek out for a few years there yeah. on agave. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely love it. It's also a topic that some people can find quite challenging. This style of spirit, a lot of people have had one bad experience and never gone back. Yes. And we'll try and talk a bit about that. I know I had a bad experience and it was a hard road to get back from it. Oh, yeah. I think everyone's got, everyone, that's, I think that's the biggest thing that stands in the way of agave being more successful it's still hugely successful it is, is you know everyone has that uh 2 a.m shot that wasn't right and didn't sit well and you know and if you were to shoot anything that way at 2 a.m after having 20 drinks prior it's not going to end well the garvey spirit <laughs> is one that you need to drink independently not you know multiple other things at the same time it is one thing you need to be committed to uh, I disagree. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, we'll break that down yeah, a little we'll, bit. We'll, we'll get yeah. into that one, absolutely. Because yes, I think it can be paired with a million and one things. Me too. I, <laughs> I definitely agree with that. And then, you know, I've definitely caught myself drinking mezcal and tequila at any time of the day, but we will go into that. But first of all, I'd like to just get you to explain your time in this industry, you know, where you've been, what you've done. Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit about myself. Um, I have been working within the hospitality or liquor industry for, I'm trying to think now, probably over 15 years. Probably. Yep. Let's let's not figure it out too closely. But um, since I was 18, literally turned 18, I'd been studying to be a chef prior to turning 18, turned 18, started working in a nightclub yep. and went from nightclubs to pubs to restaurants to uh, cocktail venues to working with within the liquor distribution industry. Um, and yeah, it's been a very exciting path. And very wild ride. Yes. <laughs> I've yeah. covered many different bases within the industries, but agave's been a very strong passion of mine throughout that. Yeah. And so you ran an agave bar as well. Uh, so we were Australia's first only agave bar yeah. uh, based in Melbourne. Uh, so when, when I say a, a when I say Australia's first only agave bar, what I mean is we didn't have gin. We didn't have yeah. vodka. We didn't have whiskey. We had a very large selection of agave and we had all of our tr staff trained that if we had a customer come in and say, oh, I only drink vodka or I only drink scotch or I only drink whiskey or bourbon or whatever, we could f we would uh, ask them a couple of questions, figure out what they liked about those things and then be able to recommend them Absolutely. an, an agave-based spirit. I uh, had that experience as well at, at that bar and, you know, um, those staff were incredibly knowledgeable and helped guide people along that journey back from those yes. awful experiences we mentioned before. And like w when we opened this venue, it was back in t uh, 2012 yeah. uh, and the fight through that bad experience of tequila that so many people have had um, was, it was a very, very much an uphill battle and yeah. at the time there was... You know, there was only a few 100% agave tequilas actually being distributed in the country. Everything else we had to import ourselves. So we're, we were doing direct import from the UK, from America, direct from Mexico, and we were literally shipping most of our uh, tequila across into Australia. And once we had it, other people started bringing it in and that's when the distributors actually started looking at Australia as a market for tequila. And now we're one, per capita, we're one of the highest agave-consuming uh populations in the world that's incredible so, and it's the the what you achieved there with that is also inspired people to open other 100 agave bars around australia which yeah. one of the best being cantina okay up in sydney love cantina yeah <laughs> one of the one of the best bars in australia easily oh and absolutely highly worth checking out it is you'll have the best experience there and drink stuff that yeah 
you won't see outside of the distillery in Mexico. I'm pretty sure they're uh, they've got their hand shaved ice machine, and it was imported directly from exactly uh, Mexico. It was, yeah, yes. yeah. It is one of the best bar experiences I've ever had. Mm. Um, highly worth checking out. But it, it's definitely been inspired by what you, what was achieved at, here in Melbourne at Touche Ombre. Um, we've also got other tequila bars now with um, so many amazing ones. Bodega Underground and a few others, all really championing this really rustic style of spirit. Yes, which and is yeah, just the fact that it's gotten beyond tequila is just so much more amazing because it means we can connect with lots of local communities and the independent producers yep. within other areas of Mexico, not just Jalisco and various other regions, but we're looking at Mezcal, we're looking at Ricias, we're looking at um, we're now starting to see pechugas as well. Yes, lots of pechugas as yeah. a style and uh, lots of uh, things coming out of Chihuahua as well, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's it's really exciting time to see the growth in the industry, which is what we'll kind of break down as we go further. But we'll start off with our 60-second history that we do every single episode. I'll get you to time me okay. and challenge me. Challenge you your Tell me time. if I'm wrong. Which I probably will be. <laughs> like I said, you know much more about this topic than I do. Um, All right. Sh- should I count you in? Count me in. One, two, three. The first drink to be produced from an agave spirit is pulque, which is basically a fermented agave sap, basically a fermented kind of wine from agave sap. And then it's not until the 1500s where the Spanish arrived and brought over a heap of, you know, Spanish distillates and wines and also the introduction of the Filipino um, population into to Mexico and they introduced distillation. They start to distill this, the fermented sap that's been produced, this polque, and start to make this rough, rustic spirit that we know now as tequila and mezcal. And it was mostly treated as a community spirit. So it was made for the people around it. It wasn't industrialized until... The last 100 years, and I think that's enough for now because we'll break it down even further. How do oh, I make that? Eight seconds left. I know. <laughs> I'm actually proud of myself. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> but there is so much history. We could spend days talking about this or keep it short, keep it bright. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really, really good 60-second summary. I yeah. think that... There's so much more we could break down. So much more. Like the the history of agave within the Central American communities, now, a lot of it now being Mexico, is very, very long and it do, it starts well before tequila. So yeah. the, the bringing in of the polque aspects and there was cer- ceremon- huge ceremonial aspects to it. Absolutely. That are still going, going actually even further back with some of the um, ancient um, cultures from South America and Central America. Um, very, very... Ceremonial, like you say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we like I said, we'll be here for days. <laughs> <laughs> let's not bore everyone with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think let's start off by just what was your very first experience with agave spirits? I would have to be a part of the absolute masses where my first part, my first experience with agave was, you know, being underage at a house party, doing shooters of terrible rocket fuel that you could. You know, if you were going by the legal classifications of tequila, probably wasn't actually tequila, but no neutral spirit. Yeah, neutrals, neutral tequila flavored spirit mm. that stripped the insides of your mouth off. Yeah, uh, it was more methanol than ethanol, right? Oh yeah, there was, <laughs> there was nothing really enjoyable about it. But the ceremony of the shot and the lime and the salt was already ingrained in the mind. So the concept of tequila was something that was understood even at that very young. Yeah. Not quite legal age. <laughs> yeah, and it, it is that ceremony thing, right? Yes. It's the experience we've all had. And, um, you know, it's something that as we're trying to encourage consumers to drink, drink better, drink wiser, drink higher quality, mm-hmm. drink Drink less but drink better. Yes. Yeah. Um, it That's the ceremony of the lime and the salt is something that we've been really trying to break. Yeah. As much as there is a ceremony in that, like, the ha- the habit and the fun yeah. Is there? There are better ways to do it. I mean, there's also that. Uh, there's um, the other things with you know, orange and cinnamon sugar. Oh, and, love that. <laughs> yeah, with reposado tequilas yeah. and añejos, etc. So yeah, there's all these ceremonies sort of surrounding it. But 
we don't need that ceremony to to abuse the the spirit. We can just enjoy it. Yes, as long as we are drinking better. Um, I remember. Well, my first experience was very similar. It was just at a party at a friend's house that you know an age I won't disclose, <laughs> but it was it was that that ceremony that brought everyone into it. But it's also what led to a lot of people having that awful experience that we're talking about, where they've overconsumed or mm. had that last shot that didn't sit so well and. You know, it it can be quite challenging. Mm. But I'd say by the time people are 20, the number of people who say adamantly that they don't drink tequila because of those poor experiences. It's very high percentage. Very high. Yeah. So then it's once they get a little bit older, then when you have a little bit more money, a little bit more disposable income to start saying, actually, I do want to drink something that's a little bit nicer or I want to try something or I'm open to a new experience. And that's where... The door is open to being able to taste, feel, see and experience all the, the what is the wonderful world of agave, uh, not necessarily just tequila, but moving into the mezcals and other categories as well. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but a lot of the people that say they don't drink tequila are the same ones who will drink tequila-based cocktails because some of the tequila-based cocktails are some of the best cocktails in the world. Oh, absolutely. And <laughs> we'll break that down a little bit later, but let's, let's talk about what is agave. So agave... So agave itself is so basic, basic. What is agave? It is a plant that is native to uh, Central Americas. Yeah. So it kind of spreads a little bit north into America, a little bit south into the top of South America, but realistically Central, Central America yeah. is where it's from. Um, the agave that's used to make tequila specifically is called the Blue Weber agave. Mm-hmm. And when grown to full maturity is huge. So when you're talking about the blue weber, when you see them fully grown, as like they will be two meters tall. So from the American standards, that's over seven feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are massive and they are covered in these giant spike leaves. They kind of look like enormous pineapples with the fronds everywhere rather than just yes. on the top of it, right? Yeah, gi- giant pineapples with the spiky bits everywhere. Like the spiky bits are so sturdy that in a huge amount of South America, like I was, I was traveling through Peru many years ago and they were using the actual blue Weber agaves, not as any kind of uh, fruit to be grown, but they were using it as fencing to keep the farm animals in. Jesus. So, right. Okay. Yeah. That's <laughs> like, it, it's a sturdy plant. It, yeah. it grows in the deserts. It grows very, in very, very high deserts, but that is what effectively they use. So they, you, they once it comes to full maturation, uh, they have the hemidors, yeah. which are the tends to be like a family run, um, like it's a trade essentially that's passed down from father to son. Yeah, um, that have these very very sharp uh, blades, and they cut off those spikes in unbelievable speed. And the heart of the plant is then cooked, which is called the pinna, right? Yeah, pinna. Uh, so pinna or the the heart. Yeah. Um, and that's then cooked, then it's mashed up and it's fermented. So the reason they cook it's to help all of those sugars really basically get, break down the fibrous component and allow yeah. the sugars to really become more active. Yeah. So it's to well, a lot of the sugars are held in their starchy form before cooking. So by cooking it, it helps to convert the sugars into something that then that can then be turned into alcohol. Yeah. So they do need to cook it first for it to to be able to ferment those higher. Uh, ABVs. Well, we talked about pulque in the the little sixty second history, and pulque was originally yeah this sap that was they used mm. um, saliva to to yeah. help break that down as well. Yeah, and so the pulque in some parts they would harvest the heart, and then there are other parts where they would actually leave it growing. Um, so they would cut the top off. So this is only in some parts, and mm-hmm. you know. One history in the history of agave in one area is going to be very different to the history of agave in one different another area. Absolutely, this is why we could talk about it for days. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but there are other parts where they would cut open certain sections of it, and it would be uh, they'd be fermenting it within the agave as the plant grew. Yeah, so it will as it was you know the plant would have been dying once they did that, but it would keep growing and feeding, so they would be able to keep developing and brewing that agave beer or wine. Basically extracting the sap and letting it ferment within the plant itself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. So, I mean, it's one of those things that part of me really wants to have tried it in its original form and other part of me 
doesn't because yeah. <laughs> I don't really want to be drinking someone's uh, spit spit wine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, for the education aspect of it, it'd be really interesting. But... Look, I'm not, I'm not mad that we we get to experience it in its current form. <laughs> no, not at all. But yeah, it'd be really fun. But there are so many species of agave out there apart from just the one that we make um, tequila from. There's all these different species. So it's mm. just basically the blue weber is what we make tequila from. Yeah. So a good way to think about it is if we're starting to talk about the other areas of um, agaves and types of agave spirit, uh, mezcal is kind of the mother of the agave spirits. Basically, it's the origin story. Yes, it's yeah. the origin story. It's where it all began. And then tequila is what made it famous. Yeah. So tequila can be made in five different regions, but realistically, Jalisco, uh, which is the Mexican state that the town of tequila is held in, mm-hmm. uh, is what made it popular. Yeah. And when you go to Jalisco, you drive through the valleys and the hills and it's just fields of blue. Yeah. It's amazing. Like it's this beautiful, dusty, green, blue tone and it's just rolling hills. Like if you've ever been to any kind of wine country where there's vineyards everywhere, it's the same thing. You see those long, long lines and it's just blue everywhere and it's yeah, gorgeous. There's so much agave everywhere. Oh, yes. And it's been really popularised over the last, I'd arguably say the last 30 years, especially with a lot of celebrities getting on board and mm. really pushing, you know, I think George Clooney was one of the first and then it kind of really snowballed from there with their own tequila brands. I'd, um, I'd probably say Sammy Hagar was the first. Oh, yeah, Sammy the, Hagar uh, was, yeah. For the absolutely. celebrity tequilas. I forgot about that. <laughs> um, he uh, he definitely paved the way for the celebrity tequila. and what, what it was called, Wabo Cabo? Cabo Wabo. Cabo Wabo, yeah. yes. Still very much a party as we we have experienced ourselves. Very recently, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that, that was an incredible experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, the, 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 that's absolutely helped the, the brand identity, if you will, of, mm. of agave spirits, of tequila specifically, with the celebrity involvement. And it's happening now with gin uh, mm. currently. Absolutely. Um, so we've kind of talked about what agave is, but what is tequila? So it's made in Jalisco. So How's it made? It'll be made, so it'll be made in one of those five states, yeah. predominantly Jalisco. Um, but it legally can be called tequila if it is grown in one of the other five states yeah. as well. Um, but from that, it's essentially, it goes through that process of they get the agave, their um, humidors will cut off all of the sharp spikes. It'll get roasted or it will be, get put into a steam oven again yeah. to help those sugars convert to something that can be used to yeah. uh, get that high ABV. Um, and then it'll go through a fermentation process. Yeah. And what? so they're mashed before fermentation as well. Yeah. Because uh, agave is incredibly fibrous. Oh, yes. Very, very, very fibrous. It's like a sappy green wood, right? It's very, very dense. Yeah. It's, it is essentially a wood. Yeah. It's essentially a wood that they then have to mash down once it's been cooked. Yeah. So they need that cooking to help soften it, but also to release those sugars. Yeah. Yeah. So from there, it goes into a still and yeah. it will be fermented. Um, and then fermented within the still itself. Uh, yeah. So it can be, it can have an external ferment or yeah. it will go straight into a distillation, um, into a distillation pot and have just sit there and then they'll start the process. Yeah. So it depends. Producers it, it, independently. It, it yeah. will depend on the producer and how they do it. Some of them will have a separate open vat ferment if they want those wild uh, yeast to enter it. Yeah. If they want to control the, uh, the process a bit more, they're going to have their own yeast that they'll inoculate the batch with yeah. and, and they'll, they'll have, have a closed ferment. They'll have that that they've propagated over Over decades. generations, yeah. yeah. So each distillery will do their own little process with that and then they distill it. So is it pot distilled or? Uh, sometimes pot. Yeah. Well, majority pot. Some of the larger producers are going with column still now, yeah. um, but they tend not to advertise when they do that. So now, let's explain a little bit about pot and column because, look, it's a hard thing to explain with a very, a very limited time that we've got. But basically pot distillation is a batch process. So it's a single batch process process. Um, You'll get a little bit of variation, but it'll it'll be mostly um, trying to keep as much of the residual flavor of the product itself. Where column distillation, you have a single distillation, but you're going to get a lot higher alcohol out of it and be able to pull mm. out a lot more of the impurities in the spirit. Yeah. Yeah. So the column, it can kind of, in theory, do like 
you know, they'll it'll say it might say seven time distilled it, but it really is stickly. It's only gone through the column once. But, but they've, they've pulled it, it off at a certain point, so they know it's been rectified yep. seven times. Yeah, they'll just run it through continuously. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's such an interesting topic that it is very, very complex. I recently had to explain what column distillation is and how it operates. Trying to explain it without a picture there is very difficult. <laughs> yes, it, it, yeah. <laughs> it, it's definitely one of the pro those processes that as you're explaining it, you want to have a visual aid of the column still cut in half with the tubes going yeah. from each, the tubes and the plates at each level shown. <laughs> it can be a very challenging thing to explain to people. Um, and there are different styles of tequila. So after it's been distilled, typically there's different styles. So some matured, some are not. Mm. So what are the different categories of tequila we have? So starting off with uh, Blanco or Hoven or Cristiano. Uh, so essentially... silver. Silver. <laughs> yeah, all of the clear tequilas. Yeah. Um, so these will, as a general rule of thumb, be between uh, aged for between zero and two months. Yep. Um, with the exception, some of them are aged longer and then decolorized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, uh, charcoal filtered or yep. UV light filtered or yep. whatever. So it, there's a lot of different filtration methods or decolorization methods, um, but essentially it's zero to two months or decolorized. Yeah. Um, and that's in that silver, hoven, blanco, anything that means clear, white or silver yeah. is that this this little category. Um, this is the essentially the youngest one ones of the batch. Yeah. Uh, they tend to have a bit more pepper. They tend to be a little bit fresher. Um, but they also tend to be a bit spicier yeah. um, or hold a little bit more heat within the palate. Yeah. Uh, then we move on to Reposado. Yeah. Uh, Reposados will sit between two months and 12 months um, and that goes into uh, oak barrels. Typically ex-bourbon. Mostly ex-bourbon, purely because A, there's a lot of ex-bourbon barrels around and their pro proximity to the estates makes them makes it a very, very easy thing to collect. They're, they're affordable, they're accessible. Yeah. It affordable, does the job we need. Affordable, accessible, it's right there. Yeah. Um, but also a lot of the, there's been a growing trend of bringing in barrels from uh, France, ex-cognac barrels. Which is that's actually really exciting to see. Yes. It's, it shows that how much the category for uh, agave has grown and is developing yeah. because now now there is an economy of scale that they can afford to reach further, further afield for their barrels. It also shows that they're trying to innovate a little bit and create a bit more variety and expanse within the industry itself. So yeah. that is really exciting. And for cognac barrels, I've typically found that you get this with they're typically made out of French oak, which will give you more dry oak characteristics, so spice, light, bright, um, a little bit more tannin, but comparatively to American oak, but then also get a lot more stone fruit coming in yes. from the timber itself. Yes, definitely. Like apricots, stone peaches. Fruit. Yeah. So that'll It'll, be really sorry. interesting <laughs> as a as a category. That'll be very, very interesting to see that that happen. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's already coming through. There are a fair few producers starting to do that, and it just means there's more it has that more fruity stone fruit coming through, but it can lead to a slightly more refined finish because yep. uh, a lot of the cognac barrels are using uh, a different kind of oak. Well, they, that's that French oak. So that mm. tannin structure, I've always found um, French oak, like I said, that dry spice, but in the tannin structure just pulls everything off the back of your palate. Yes. Always. Yeah. So it's going to be essentially a bit smoother. Yeah. <laughs> when we when we break it down, it's going to have a, li a little bit more of a smooth finish if it's got that if it's got a finer oak barrel, or even just a little bit short. Mm. You know. But hey, I love French oak. <laughs> when it's done done well, it's done very very well. Yes, it's absolutely. Very special timber. <laughs> anyway, and the next that's category. The risotto. <laughs> risotto. Uh, next category, we move into añejo. Yeah. Uh, so añejo is anything from twelve months to three years. Yeah. Uh, and this is same process. It's just sat down a little bit longer. But the thing to remember is that in Mexico, you've got the huge, huge disparities in temperature between evening and night. So the, it's going to be cold evenings, hot days, and the rate of angel share loss and the interaction that that spirit has with the barrel is a lot higher. So rather Absolutely. than talking in, you know, four, six, eight, 12, 21 years, we're talking months to to three years yeah um and just getting a very similar level of interaction 
uh, because of in those. In a shorter period of time because of that, that, that change. There's also the, there's changes, really rapid changes in humidity in this area of Mexico as well. Yes. So it's almost right on the equator. You know, there's all of this, this change. It's really interesting part of the world to, to mature spirit in. Yes, absolutely. Like it's, there's huge, because we think of Mexico being just dry and hot a lot of the time. Yeah. But realistically, the area of Jalisco where um, a lot of this agave is grown, it's a couple of thousand feet above sea. Uh, sorry, a couple of thousand feet above sea level, mm-hmm. um, and so high altitude, very very high rainfall at some periods of the year, yeah. and then dry. So that wet season, dry season. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that because of that changing climate. Um, it just has, it just means the spirit has a lot of interaction with the barrel and the longer you leave it in, the darker and deeper it's going to be, a lot more caramel notes coming through. Um, the classic of what you would, would experience if you are a bourbon or a whiskey drinker, if you like things with a bit more age on them, then leaning towards an, a Nyeho might be a better option if you're trying to get into t- t- yeah. trying and tasting agave spirits. Seeing that timber structure there yeah. and all that. Do you see... Um Tequila's being matured further than three years? Yes, in a select few. And often this is when we're talking about that, um, the ceremonial aspect of tequila, uh, you'll find that the extra añejos, so it is a new category. Um, yeah. Well, it's a new official category. Unofficially, it had been done for years. Yeah. Um, but in the last, I'd say, might be 20 years that extra añejo became an official category. And that's anything aged over three years. It wasn't entirely commercially viable for a long time as well. So no. it's only it's only been the last ten years I've seen it really heavily represented by the big brands. So. Yeah, absolutely. And before that, it was being produced. It was just something that was used as a matter of family, um, a family tradition, ceremony. That ceremonial, if, that celebration of yeah culture and absolutely like. Yeah. If you're if you if you're in Mexico and you happen to be around any of the grave sites uh, in November, you'll see a lot of uh, bottles of the premium mezcal or tequilas being left on the great on the graves of the loved ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, as a part of celebration and leaving it for their past family members. So yeah, the the, the spiritual aspect of it all. Yeah, um, yeah. There, there it is. That ceremonial spiritual thing. That cultural thing. It is. Yeah. It's really incredible to, to witness. and you know. ah, Absolutely. And it comes back to that at the end of the day, no matter what you're drinking, it's there to be enjoyed. It's there to be celebrated. It's there to be had with friends, had with family. The origins of all these spirits come from being produced by cultures to celebrate everything between birth and death. It's an entirely cultural aspect. That's why it was always called the water of life. Yes. You know? Absolutely. All these distilled spirits, the, the terminology always goes back to something life-giving and um, I always, I, that's one of the things that got me into this industry, that, that kind of ceremonial, romantic, cultural aspect to it. So, yes. Yeah. Well, we talked about these kind of core terminologies. There are other terms that I have seen, um, like plato, mm-hmm. um, and other little kind of terms that are used for tequila specifically. So plato, I believe is a slightly higher strength Blanco tequila. Uh, it can be. Yeah. Um, it's it again. It comes back to that interchangeability, interchangeability of terms within yeah. the category as a whole. So it can be a little bit higher percentage, or they can just call it a hoven or a blanco. Yeah. Um, the same way at the moment, they're trying to figure out how many different agaves they actually use for the, the production of mezcal. Yeah. So we we're mentioning p- before where tequila is made from blue weber. Yeah. And that's that's how it's made. Um, that's that denomination. That's the denomination. Same way for champagne in France. Um, it yeah, has just wine in general is the broad term, like yeah. mezcal is, and then you've got tequila, which is the more specified and regulated. Yeah, I mean, they're starting to bring in some regulations surrounding mezcal, but tradition, and there is a lot of controversy around that control because there is... There's so much cultural and the community distilleries. That yeah, it's that. That's the thing. That mezcal has gained popularity, and they're trying to create a dom- denomination of origin. The uh, argument that's coming from a lot of the communities outside of those regions is: we've been making this for generations. Mm-hmm. It's always been mezcal for us. Why? Why is it now not? 
Um, but from the commercial uh, argument side of things, it's, well, we're trying to do for Mezcal what we did for tequila. And if, protect people, mm. protect the consumer, but also be able to communicate to the consumer what it is, define yes. it for people. Yes, absolutely. So at the moment, going through that process of trying to define Mezcal um, and all the different terms, there's arguments as to whether Mezcal is made from over 200 different types of agaves or if it's produced from 86 types of agaves mm -hmm. that just have different names yeah. for the same thing. Yeah, right. And I feel like there's arguments for and against defining the, the category as a whole, but yeah, it could be it could be damaging to the category because some of the romance from it does come from the fact that there's these tiny little producers that, you know, make less than 5,000 litres a year and mm. it's mostly just community spirit. But yeah. we are able to access it some sometimes and see all of these really unique styles of spirit coming from from Mexico and seeing what's happening there. It's yeah, like I said, arguments for and against. Who knows? <laughs> so we have talked about tequila. Let's talk about mezcal now. We've already started that train. We, we've we've started on the on the train. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we'll mention first and foremost what we're drinking here. So we are drinking the El Holgorio. Barril mm -hmm. Mezcal, which you mentioned before is one of your favorite uh, yes, varietals. It is. The barrel, barrel is a long tubular style of agave. So when I say tubular, um, how we were talking about the uh, humidors coming along and cutting off all the spikes. All the fronds or, yeah. Yes, all the, all the spiky leaves uh, rather than it being a, a pineapple-shaped heart, uh, it's a long tube shape. More cactus-y if you wanted to really broaden it out. Yeah, yeah, M more cactusy in shape. Like it's long tubular is yeah. the best way I can describe it because, you know, it's 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 simple to describe it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but size-wise, they can be picked and harvested at many different sizes. So sometimes they might be harvested at a meter or, you know, three feet. Yeah. Um, other times they can be, again, over two, two and a half meters long. Um, because the nature of mezcal is a bit more wild in style. Yeah. So a lot of the agaves that they make that are used in the production of mezcal, rather than being farmed, they actually go out into the like down the mass like down the valley walls and with a donkey and literally go and collect the uh, agaves and then strap it to the because the donkey, when they say donkey, I'm meaning this in a quite literal term because they actually need an animal that can get up and down the yeah. sides of a lot of these hills. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it well, it's it's a very um, uh, core part of that kind of process is it, mm. it's something that's so necessary yeah. yet traditional. They can't use cars or trucks or anything to farm this, they, this agave. It's it's not grown in areas with roads. It's no. it's It's... Sure. There is literally a uh, like a, a, a process of if they tried to use a car to get in or a truck to get into a lot of these areas, the truck would just get stuck. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very practical for their use of uh, animals just to be able to access them. And again, going back to that point of them not being farmed and a lot of it being wild harvested is the age of the agave. So um, a lot of the time they can be 20, 25, 35 years old before it's old enough to harvest. Well, this one here specifies it's 13 years old, the agave that they use, which was Barrel. Yeah. Like we mentioned. Absolutely. It and was harvested in 2017. Oh, very so nice. That's six years ago this was harvested. And the fact that they can put these age statements on now goes to show that how far the uh, Mezcal category has come along as well. Absolutely, so, yeah. Like... Yeah. Again, looking back at, you know, 10 years ago, they wouldn't have been able to put a lot of the age statements on the mezcals because they didn't, know, they didn't know for know. sure. Or they were harvesting from a very large selection of age groups and mashing it all together. Whereas once the tequila category started to grow, uh, a lot of the mezcal producers on their plots of land and, or on their section of hillside that they traditionally farm when I say I say farm in in, quote, in quotation marks, harvest, harvest. There we go. <laughs> They've uh, actually started um, making uh, developing the pups, like the baby plants, mm -hmm. um, and trying to plant in place. Yeah. So it's trying to mitigate the uh, impact that the harvesting of those agaves has had. 
Great. Okay. So they're trying to basically protect their industry going forward as yep. well and you know minimize impact but also support their own production. Yeah. So but rather than being lines and fields like you would have for yeah, the blue weber agave for tequila, it's done in the natural environment that they would normally be found. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. Really really interesting. I had the I had the uh privilege of being able to go and visit one of the um the agave farms in Oaxaca so for mezcal and we were walking around on this uh property and it was absolutely gorgeous right it's like right on the edge of a hill and no part of the property was flat is the best way I can describe it everything was on some kind of slope everything was on an angle at no point were your feet on two sections of the same level ground (laughs) 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 and uh, we're walking around and I had uh, a a friend of a friend walking me around this property and translating for me Um, because even if I spoke uh, Spanish it wouldn't have helped me because this particular farmer uh, spoke a specific dialect that was not Spanish based. No it would have been yeah (laughs) <laughs> there are there are multiple dialects going on down oh, yes. there, especially in Oaxaca. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, the Oaxacan people are very proud of the culture that they have and their connection to to mezcal. Um, also, Oaxacan food is oh, so good, so incredible. <laughs> they should be proud. They do it really, really yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> um, my wife Lindsay and I found a Oaxacan restaurant when we were in LA recently. Well, last year. And honestly, the best food we had the entire time was from that restaurant. This incredible goat barbacoa mm. was spectacular. Oh, I, I have to agree. And it's like anytime you have mole, you pr- the proper Oaxacan mole where it, like, you know, yeah. the 35 plus ingredients that they yeah. might add to it, amazing. This place had, I think, six different moles they offer and they do a tasting of three of them side by side and you got to taste three different moles. It was oh. I'm drooling just thinking oh. about it. <laughs> um, I'm getting hungry now. <laughs> uh, but so essentially as he was walking me around the property, he was telling us about the fact that he um, was one of the first in his, on his hillside, as he described it, yep. uh, to start replanting tabalas and he started doing this in the 70s right uh so when the tabala craze came through of it it was one of the first uh varieties of agave within the uh, within the mezcal world outside of espadin which is Mm -hmm. the most popular style because it can be farmed easily yeah um so in his section for tabala uh whenever he harvested a tabala agave he would plant three more yeah. Um, and it was always in the area that he picked uh, the original Tabala from because he knew it He knew it could grow there then. Yeah. Because they are very fickle. Yeah. The environment changes so so drastically in a very short space. Yes. And yeah. so they are, each of these varietals, the reason there are so many varietals of agave is because they are very protective of their environment. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's evolved in this location for a reason and yeah. they've all evolved differently to fight certain aspects of, of that uh, environment. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we, you know, we mentioned Espadin being the most common yes. uh, agave varietal for mezcal specifically. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Tabala, yep. got Baril that we have just tasted here. Are there are other notable agave varietals. I mean, there's over so 200 <laughs> different varietals. So, so many. I would have to say that when it comes to, it depends on how you're using it. So yeah. if you're wanting to use uh, agave uh, mezcal in cocktails, from uh, from an environmental side of things, from a um, community side of things, um, aspartin varietals tend to be the best because it, it's less impact. They can be farmed. Um, they're the most sustainable. Yeah, they're the most sustainable for the category as a whole. Yeah. Um, because they can do it. They can ramp up production should should the popularity of the spirit increase. It's gonna. There will be a like 10 year lag on that. And they're trying to pr- pr- like, they're trying to future proof themselves at the moment. It takes time to grow these plants. They, oh, yeah. Like I said, they take a minimum of 10 years to grow this agave mm-hmm. and to then to harvest it. Some of them are harvested at 20, 25, 30 years. Yeah. And so I'm going, I'm going to flip us back to the topic of tequila within that. So one of the biggest threats to tequila at the moment 
is it's um, is has actually been its popularity. It's gotten so popular so quickly. They haven't had time to plant the fields and to have, the, the, the to, to the level that they needed to the volume. Yeah, and yeah. it takes time. It does take time. And what was common practice a few years ago of uh, harvesting at eight years, it's becoming very far more normal now for it to be harvested at five years. So yeah, rather so than so you won't get the depth and complexity in the, the the plant itself after not letting it grow that the time it needs to take. Yeah, it obviously it depends how they treat the agaves, how they cook it, how they you know ten other factors in the process. But the long and short of it is there's less sugars that have developed. Yeah. So there's less like so it's they've Yield got to do slower. more. To, yeah. They, well, they've got to do more to it to get the yeah. um get the alcohol out of it. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got all of these different varietals. So uh, we were talking recently about Madrakiche. Yes. Which is one of my personal favorites. I love Madrakiche. Is there any other ones people should look out for? Um, I mean, Tabala is one of my favorite. And if you're trying to, once, you're, once you start with the Espadin, so mm-hmm. you're starting with the cocktails and then taking your baby steps into trying it straight for Espadin, then moving into the Tabala is a really good step. Um, because it's a sweeter style yeah. um, and they, it tends to have a little less harshness and a less, little less sharp edges to it mm-hmm. when you're trying the Tabala. Um, once you want to start getting a little bit more adventurous, that's when you can go into the Baril and the uh, Madrakishes and yeah. they've got lots of sharp edges, lots of lots of grunt behind the... Um, more industrial. Yeah, a yeah. lot more industrial flavours. And when we say industrial, don't be surprised if one of the first things that you smell is diesel. Diesel <laughs> or I always use um, angle grinders or, yep. you know, yep. uh, flinty, gunpowdery kind of things. Yeah, I think Grandpa's shed but he's been very lax on keeping lids on his bottles. Yeah, the oily rag. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it is. And yeah. There's a bit of a misnomer that all mezcal is smoky, right? Mm. And people think it's just smoky tequila. Which, you know, if you're wanting to do a very simplified uh, description, Analogy, yeah. uh, then that's a good way if you're trying to say, if, you're, if you want to explain what mezcal is in two seconds, that's that's fine. That's yeah. that's two really, words, smoky tequila. Yeah, and the, you know, if you're in a fast-paced bar environment, that's all the time you have a lot of the time. So yeah. that is absolutely fine if you've only got those two words to be able to describe it in a short minute. But, but it is a very drastic oversimplification. Very much so. Because <laughs> even this one that we're drinking here, it's not smoky at all. It mm. is industrial, but it's not. Yeah, it's got that smoke to it, and it's how the agave is treated. Am I right? Or? Yeah. So. Um, the cook process was where the smoke comes in. So yeah. traditionally when you're making mezcal, uh, what what they would do is they would get all of the engaves and rather than putting it into a oven, they would dig a giant hole in the ground, yeah. get lots of, lots of hot coals and then cover it with dirt and leave it to cook for days. And it would just cook in the earth with all these hot coals really low and slow. Yeah. So uh, if anyone's had a New Zealand hungi or I forget the, um, there's a Hawaiian term. The, like for, the pit roasted. Yeah, pit roasted uh, meal for the meats. They do the same thing but with the agar- with the uh, mezcal agaves. Um, and then they'll go through the process of uh, mashing it and fermenting it. Mezcal is almost exclusively open vat ferment so yeah. they can get all those natural yeasts from the farms that they grow on. Um and then they'll go through and distill. Um, and a lot of the distillation process is done with n- less, not really pot stills and almost... They're uh, very rustic styles of distillation. Ve- yeah, very rustic styles. I've seen lots of bamboo used in pipes and um, yeah, terracotta pots. Terracotta pots or, you know, aluminium that's been roughly beaten into shape with... Uh, old gutters and drain pipes yep. and stuff being used and they just use whatever they have around them. Like, uh, especially in mezcal production, it is really robust, really rustic style of production. I was reading recently that specifically with agave spirits, the way this is going to get very technical, I'm going to try and keep it as simple as possible. But when we distill uh, a fermented spirit, a f- fermented product, 
we want to distill the methanol first and we want to get rid of it because we shouldn't be drinking methanol. No, don't want to send anyone blind. Blind or kill them yeah, in that order. Yeah, one of the two. But it also it leads to if you drink a little bit, you'll vomit and you'll get headaches and become really sick um, and slowly go blind and then die. But <laughs> Minor details. Yeah. And then the ethanol comes off and then later on our fusel oils and water. So we get rid of that as well. Yeah. But because of the way agave ferments and then what, how fibrous it is, the methanol actually comes off later. So the ethanol actually starts to distill earlier. So it ends up having a more residual methanol. So the cheaper tequilas, mm. you'll end up actually having more methanol in that. And that's why a lot of people throw up. and. Yes you know, get headaches and really bad hangovers. So good mezcal and good tequila is normally a better way to consume it. Mm-hmm. More yep. expensive. but More expensive and... You'll have a better experience. You'll understand it better, but it's only those cheaper ones because of that methanol content. Mm. Absolutely. It's not and enough to send you blind, but it is enough to make you sick. Yeah, and when you say about the it, the concept of cheaper tequilas or cheaper mezcals and the methanol... Um, there's a it's a translated saying, but it's the be, the best mezcal has small hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, so traditionally, if you're making, it doesn't matter what spirit you're making, whether it's gin, tequila, uh, whiskey, whiskey, rum, any, et anything. When it goes through the distillation process, they they get rid of the heads, which is often the methanol, and the tails, which is a lot of the, the like fusel oil, yeah, waters. all the oils and yeah, whatnot. The cheaper the product, so if it's if they're wanting to save money, they only get rid of the absolute it's the, the absolute the, top of the head. The stuff that will kill you. Yeah, the stuff that will kill you, and then they'll leave in a lot more of the oils, um, and it starts to get really like that industrial style or very lemony yeah. or whatever they've used to put into it. The the less of it they leave out, the more yield they get, and the cheaper it is for them to be able to produce. Yeah, but. So when they say the best mezcal has a small heart, when they talk about the heart, they mean the best part of the spirit. Yeah. So it means they get rid of a lot of the head and they get rid of a lot of the tail to be able to have that beautiful middle bit. Yeah, and that's going to have the least methanol. Yes. Going to not make you sick. Not make you sick, absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> and it's just such, it's such an interesting thing because everything I've always been told is about, you know, methanol distills early but it's because of that fibrous nature in the agave plant itself it mm. just holds on to it holds on to it, it and won't right let it go end. yeah and it's such an interesting process but that was the least technical way we could explain it yeah <laughs> um, absolutely yeah it's such an interesting topic now we've mentioned a lot of cocktails as well so you and i both come from a cocktail background mm. as well we Love spent it. a lot of time drinking <laughs> far too many <laughs> <laughs> especially when we were in mexico together recently oh, dear. <laughs> um, yes <laughs> uh what is your favorite Agave cocktail. Uh, I mean, I'm a simple gal. I love a Paloma. A Paloma. Oh. So Paloma being? So a Paloma is a uh, tequila-based cocktail. Yeah. Uh, it uses uh, grapefruit juice. It uses a little bit of lime juice. Uh, it uses a pinch of salt. And then it has a, it's then topped with uh, soda water or grapefruit soda. So traditionally it's a, a Mexican grapefruit soda. Yes. Yeah. And Paloma is Daisy in Spanish. Mm. Right? Uh, no, Margarita. N- no, Margarita's. Uh, what's Paloma again? Paloma's a. Uh, I'm not 100% sure of the translation for Paloma, mm. to be honest. Um, but either way, it's delicious. It's one of my it's one of my go-to cocktails, whether it be out at bars or whether I be at home because it's so simple and you can make pictures of it, like just big jugs of cocktail and just drink it at home. And Every time I come <laughs> over to your place for dinner, that's what we do. <laughs> a big jug of Paloma yeah. and it's fantastic because you make the you make it all and set and forget and all your guests can make it themselves, can pour drinks for themselves. Pour it over ice and it's done. It's yes. easy. It's, it's a great drink. Um, are there any other ones that you really, really enjoy? I mean, we can't not talk about the margarita. No, margarita is an absolute... Like, so I was looking at some sales data uh, last year and not only is tequila the fastest growing uh, spirit in Australia, but it is, if you look at the cocktail sales at a national level, Mm -hmm. uh, any drink with the name margarita in it, whether it be pineapple, passion fruit, whatever, whatever, all the different flavors that are coming out these days, uh, the term margarita as a drink 
is the most popular cocktail in the country. That's incredible. So coming from what was people not drinking tequila and not wanting to touch it, not go near it back in back 10 years ago to it now being the fastest growing spirit and margarita being the most popular cocktail in the country. Amazing. It, it, it is so incredible. And I mean, uh, tequila cocktails are definitely among the most popular. I mean, my, one of my favorites is um, a Bloody Maria, which is basically a Bloody Mar- uh, Mary with Agave spirit. Oh, yes. I tend to prefer mezcal in there anyway because I want it to be that oh, yeah. salty, you want that savory. smoky coming through. Yeah. yeah. The industrial. I love it. Absolutely. My, I'll drink that all day and all night. What a way to kill a hangover. <laughs> it is. It's incredible. But it's also a lot of people, uh, I remember going to a bar once and ordering a Bloody Maria and it was about midnight. Mm. I go, why? It's not breakfast time. Mm. Oh, I just want to drink it. It's one of my favorite drinks. Absolutely oh, yeah. love it. Um as you all know, and I know you enjoy it as well, and um, my partner Lindsay loves it. A espresso martini with tequila is always it's a good time. Always a good time. It's amazing as well because if you have uh, a little bit of sweetness added in, yeah. so a lot of espresso martinis have kind of diverged from the original where it was just that um, coffee liqueur coffee, espresso and vodka. Vanilla vodka, yeah. Yeah, um, and a lot of bars have started adding in like vanilla syrup or uh, sweeteners to help appease a broader audience. Especially but, typically the ones that are using poor coffee as well, yes. like really in astringent, mm-hmm. over, over-roasted coffee. Yeah, um, you know, and w- we've all been guilty of just bashing out a whole heap of espresso shots when it's been a mid-service and you've run out of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not going to be the best experience of coffee at the time, but when you're fact, if when you're bringing in mezcal into that mix, that extra bit of sugar yeah. actually works really well. You've got some, you've got an makes extra layer of flavor, flavor that it can the sugar can grab onto and rather than it just being sweet, it's you've got the smokiness to, that the sweetness helps support. Yeah. Um, which is a, like, you know, it's a really good way of getting around what might have been an average cocktail at the start. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's uh, even just simple things like just mezcal and ginger beer is a great thing, great pairing. So a really famous cocktail book by Thomas Estes, The Tequila Ambassador, has a whole sleuth of different cocktails from around the world. So yeah. he very famously travelled globally um, and was employed by the Mexican government to help promote tequila. Um, and in it has one of my favorite cocktails of all time, which was the tequila all-star. And right. it, it had the passion fruit in it. It was herb, herbaceous, um, but it was just, it was done as an up drink. So, uh, when I say up drink, uh, I mean, in like a in a glass, yes. in a martini glass, yeah, in a martini glass. Uh, but rather than being called a martini, um, it actually just stood as a cocktail in its own right. It was a little bit sour, yeah, um, and just beautifully fruity and herbal, tropical. But tequila was still the star in it. Yeah, tequila all star. Yes, exactly. Yeah, celebrate the spirit that you're making it with. Otherwise, you can make it with any spirit on earth, right? Exactly. So always celebrate that. There's, um, I mean, you can always just play around with these flavors. What you're getting in certain things. I've I've done cocktails with really really smoky mezcal with grapefruit and chocolate and Ooh. they've been really really fun and there's all these things all these flavors you can play around with it's such a great spirit to and such a diverse spirit to play with oh yeah absolutely and like i mentioned before about my absolute love of palomas so if you go if you go into jalisco so one of my favorite experiences was i'd spent the day um at uh the Arete um, dis- yep. distillery and viewing some of their uh, fields of agave um, in, you know, heart of Jalisco. And we went and visited a couple of other, um, t- uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it, like teque- tequila farms. Yeah. Uh, Haciendas. It's like the Hacienda of uh, and then whatever brand tequila. And we visited a few of them. And then we were very lucky to go and have uh, this long afternoon lunch on a hill part perched in the middle of Jalisco uh, and just surrounded by agave fields. It just smelt amazing. <laughs> and they had someone there making tacos and there was someone like playing music and it was just this lunch on the side of this hill. It sounds and, beautiful. Oh, it was amazing. 
and we then left that lunch just before sunset and we were going down the uh, hill in, we stopped in at this roadside bar. And when I say road, roadside bar, it was literally a like tables surrounded by tin shed <laughs> rooms <laughs> and wire mesh fencing to block you off from the road. <laughs> and it was packed. <laughs> there was people everywhere and it was huge. Like it went on for ages down the roadside and you got these beautiful earthenware um cups and they served you picked the size of your cup and you picked your tequila and they made these cocktails that was the cantonario um which is essentially a more more citrus version of paloma so it has the grapefruit it's got the um orange it's got the lime it's got whatever other citrus they've got available to them every citrus every citrus uh whatever's available so sometimes it might not have one of them sometimes it might not have another but it's whatever's in season whatever they can get their hands on and you have these giant earthenware jugs or pots even depending on how big how big you go and they're there (laughs) With the um, with the juices, fresh juicing all of the um, all of the citrus in front of you, and they're going at absolute breakneck speed, just pressing. I've seen like, videos of this. It's yeah, going, press, 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 and they're just throwing this citrus through and just hitting it with the citrus press um, and ha- doing it all by hand, and just handing you these gi- these giant jugs. And we just sat there and drank and watched the sunset, surrounded by agave. And to this day, is probably one of my most favorite cocktail drinking experiences. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. <laughs> and one one of the your best experiences drinking or best cocktails you'll ever have, uh, being surrounded by people or in a certain experience that just highlights what the 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 spirit that you're drinking or the cocktail itself. Sometimes some of the best drinking experiences I've ever had are not about the drink itself. It's no. who I'm with or where I'm at or what I'm doing. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's the the it's the time, it's the place, it's the people. Yeah. It's yeah, that's it. It's it's the it's the community, it's the fu- it's it's that the, the aspect of spirit at heart. Like Yeah. It's the romance, it's the culture. And that kind of leads back to this, you know, cultural spirit, all these people creating spirit for their communities and for those experiences, you know, yeah. sharing with people, being with people, yeah. being in that time, that place. It is a celebration of what we, what we live for. Yeah. And I think that's, it's definitely something that is worth protecting. So making sure that um, the, the tequilas can be held by the communities within Mexico and making sure that something that the continue the money can continue to flow back into those communities and absolutely uh, really protect where it came from and protect yeah. its spirit at at its heart. Well, we're starting to see a bit of uh, diversification in that area in this industry. We've got agave now growing here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So we've got an agave spirit about to be launched here. Mm. I'm without going too deep into that rabbit hole. Yeah, I I feel I feel like I'm I'm very much on the fence about it. I think we if we're going to do it, we need to do it respectfully. And um, the person I know who's kind of leading the charge on it is trying to work with those communities and the Mexican government as well to try and protect that. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think a big thing will be making sure that. When it is labelled, it can't be called any of the tr- traditional names that can't are used. It can't be called mezcal, tequila. It's got to be agave spirit. Yeah, absolutely. It needs to be it needs to be a separation so that it's not confusing for consumers to understand what they're picking up and what they're buying. Yeah. Um, it, me- it needs to, f- again, focus on origin the same way that we've done with wine. Like when we talk about wines, we talk about region you can't, we can start talking about the region. So say it's from a certain area of Queensland or WA or Victoria or, you know, if you're looking overseas, Mm -hmm. you're looking into other dry, arid areas where they have the potential for high rain that they could grow it in various parts of the United States um, as well as through Africa as well. Yeah. Um, But making sure that there is, when we're talking about tequila or mezcal or sotol or racia or, you know, any of the other tradition, traditional uh, products that are agave-based. Respectful of those yeah. and protecting that brand identity yeah. of, and the, those communities. Absolutely. And we can still create that uh, product here because mm. we can, we can do it. We've got to be treated properly and yeah. respectfully. Yeah, yeah, that's... 
let, let's not whitewash it. Let's make sure that if yeah. we are if we if we are doing it, we're doing it in a way that it's a celebration, not trying to steal the product from the people who created it originally. Exactly. Yeah, and we can see growth in the industry for for everyone. Yeah, as long as it's done well. Yeah, and it's the same way. Like you know, in here there there are some people that are producing corn based whiskey. Yeah. Um, they're not calling it bourbon. Well, they're not they, allowed to they're either. They're not allowed to. And <laughs> that's, that's the thing. There's, there's been a lot of very strict controls around, around the names of certain products. Mm-hmm. And it has really, it has protected the brand identity of the category. Yeah. So. And also, it, it, again, we can all grow together with that. But we've got to be respectful of the communities that have been producing it for, in this case, hundreds, hundreds of thousands. Of years. Yeah. <laughs> so we can't just... Try and, like I said, whitewash it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, we just before we finish up, I'd like to get a couple of brands of tequila and mezcal that you think we should all look out for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I mentioned, so Arete is Arete. one that is very close to my heart um, after having the amazing experience going around Mexico and visiting uh their haciendas and the beautiful uh, buildings and they were very, very hospitable. It was already a product that I loved using prior to that in cocktails because it's quite herbaceous and it was a very like... It's a very versatile... Very uh, versatile one. It's like it's got almost a dill blue cheese and I say this in the best way, they're not predominant flavours but they're there in the background. So Very subtle but it gives you complexity and depth that you can utilise and highlight as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Hacienda de Chihuahua, if we're looking at saltos, is one of the smoothest agave uh, products out there. It's got a little bit, of, it's got a beautiful hint of sweetness behind it. Um, and it's a really good entryway into agave beyond tequila. So if you're, or even if you're wanting to start t- t- experimenting with uh, tequila and you're not, you're a little bit gun shy. You've you've had those bad experiences, and you, you're just like, I don't want to hate it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to feel like I'm about to throw up. It's a really good place to start <laughs> um, because it does it gives that taste without the harshness. Um, one, the one that got me through was Tapatio, was oh, one, which unfortunately it. is no longer brought into Australia. No, not currently. Yeah. But you know, fingers crossed, one day soon. <laughs> but that was one that really got me through. It, again, that gentle, mm. soft, but really complex in flavor, and allowed us allowed me to kind of challenge my own perception based on that one experience I had. And oh yes. A, actually brought me back from the brink so yeah and they um, they they really did, did sorry they did really well at pioneering the concept of using an añejo tequila within cocktails so yes. before they came out it was really hard to find a, an affordable tequila. and accessible yeah absolutely yeah. i i think one of my favorite cocktails i ever created was using the tapateo añejo yeah um it was a stirred down drink, but it was a twist on uh, Negroni. So had the Tepeteo and Yeho, uh, used Salerno blood orange liqueur. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and it used Suze, so a gentian bitter. And so yeah, a bit stirred more, down. Yeah, bright fruit and a bit more astringent. Yeah. Yeah, really incredible. All equal parts, always. Yeah, always. Let's not overcomplicate <laughs> this. Keep it simple. Yes. The kiss rule. You know? Kiss. <laughs> um. And as for, well, actually, there's also another one that it's been brought in over the last few years, which is Casca Huayne, mm-hmm. which yeah. I've been really enjoying, especially nice. their Blanco. Absolutely. Which is a great one to look out for. But as far as mezcals, is there anything that people should be keeping an eye out for? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, if you're wanting to enter into the category, the Del Maguey range yep. is fantastic. It, they were the, they pioneered the concept of terroir for mezcal. Um, and rather than specifically naming a lot of the tequilas, sorry, a lot of the mezcals after um, the varietal, they actually named it after the towns and they had co-ops running. So yeah. it meant that all of the money that was made from uh, like actually selling the bottles would go back into the towns that produced them and it brought prosperity to the town as a whole. So not just the farmers who grew it, not just the people who uh, distilled it, but, you know, they would have um, they would have these straw uh, carry cases for each of the bottles, which the women in those communities would uh, hand, uh, weave. hand weave. 
and it, they would get money for that part of the process and the for any of the uh, Pechuga-style mezcals, they would pay for the chicken or the duck or whatever animal was... Goat uh, or whatever that was being put in the, yeah, the whatever, still. Whatever was being put in for as a part of the ferment, uh, that it was all, all that money was getting pumped back into the communities. So now when you're there looking at the range, they have the classic espadin, which is, you know, the cheap, easy, yeah. accessible... Uh, starting point but then you can select from a range of different uh, mezcal agaves or you can select from different towns that they're produced in that's incredible and um, it's because of them that kind of led the charge that companies like the the company that produced the mezcal we're to, uh, tasting today which is el Hogorio. yes absolutely they specify a distillery so it would have been the distillery in a little community and they've just bought some spirit off them and yep. that's it they've gotten all the information which is la soledad was the the Palenque or the distillery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And it's one of those things that uh, as a bartender, you have access to a lot more things than what the consumer would have. So being able to find, it's like, okay, we, we like the sound of the this, but how can we access it? And the Del Maguey range is a really easy one to access, uh, more accessible yeah. because you can find it within a lot of online bottle shops and some more premium um Bigger bottle uh, shops yeah, that we won't brick and, mention. Brick and mortar <laughs> bottle shops. Yeah. So it's and it's starting to become more available, which is fantastic. Absolutely. I, I've been really enjoying seeing what Del Maguey has done and what they've inspired in yes. a lot of people like El Holgorio and a few others. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been lovely. Thank you for having me. It's been it's always such a pleasure to talk about agave spirits or anything really with you we spend so much time too many doing hours this. Yeah. <laughs> we've always spent so much time in this this is own so it's always really exciting to to oh yes your poor wife rolls her eyes, eyes at us all the time way too often <laughs> got stuck with us in mexico it was very fun for us yes. well we'll finish off our episode with the same four questions i ask everyone they're very quick fire okay. i just want a very simple answer gotcha are you ready all right I'll try for simple answers. All right. First one. What was the first drink you ever had? Uh, it would have been a whiskey of some kind, knowing my grandpa and whose glass I would have stolen it out of. It probably was Jamison's. <laughs> Fantastic. What was the last drink you had that you really enjoyed? Ooh, I had a really nice Nebbiolo the other night. So red wine. Yes. For those. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what do you normally drink when you finish work? Uh, I'm I'm either a shot and a beer girl, mm -hmm. so it tends to be a shot of tequila or mezcal um, with a very very clean beer, lagery kind of yeah. thing. Lightest lager known to man. Yeah, beer water. <laughs> yes, beer water. Now, last one. Often called the bartender's handshake, Fernet Brunker. Do you actually enjoy it, or do you just tell people you do? Oh, I don't tell people I enjoy it. <laughs> don't I tend like to it go at all. Yuck. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you again for joining me and cheers. Cheers. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Spirited Discussions. I hope you had as much fun as I have and have been able to take away something you didn't know. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. And please join me next time on Spirited Discussions. Mm -hmm.